Welcome to the WDW Radio Show, your Walt Disney World information station. I'm your host, Lou Mangiello, and thank you for tuning in once again. This is show number 39 for the week of November 4th, 2007. This week, I'm going to have a slightly shorter show, as circumstances have prevented me from being able to cover the news and rumors this week. But that's okay, as this week, I have a few segments that I think you're really going to enjoy. First, Steve Barrett, our resident Hidden Mickeys expert, joins me once again to talk about what's new and notable in the world of Hidden Mickeys and asks you to vote on some questionable ones. In my Legends of Disney interview series, I'm pleased to welcome Bill Sully Sullivan to the show as he and I sit down to talk about his fairy tale beginnings with the Disney company to his rise in the organization and various roles in Walt Disney World. He reminisces about working for and with Walt Disney and shares some memorable stories about his amazing experiences through his 38-year career. Eric Hollister and I also have our eighth winner in the Walt Disney World Half Marathon Challenge Contest, as well as our next contest and the announcement of the grand prize, all to benefit the Make-A-Wish Foundation of America through the DisneyWorldTrivia.com Dream Team Project. I'll answer some more of your emails, so as always, please sit back, relax, and enjoy this week's episode of the WDW Radio Show. Chances are, if you're listening to this show, you not only know about Hidden Mickeys, but spend time while in the parks seeking them out and pointing them out to your friends and family and basically staring at some of the relative obscurities in and around the parks, much like I do all the time. And for the most part, there's one man to thank, or blame, I guess, depending on how obsessive you've become, and that's our resident Hidden Mickeys expert, author of the Hidden Mickeys Guides and owner of HiddenMickeysGuide.com, my good friend, Dr. Steve Barrett. Steve, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Lou. It's a pleasure to be here. It's always great to have you back. Um, we started a few weeks ago doing what's going to be a recurring segment on the show. We're going to talk about some new hidden Mickeys. We're going to ask the listeners to go to the site and, um, and vote on some of the questionable ones. So uh, why don't you tell us what, what, is, um, what are some of the new ones you found and what some of the good questionable ones you have out there? Well, the first thing I want to bring up, I, I want to ask the listeners to help me a little bit. Um, several people have emailed me about a, a hidden Mickey on the Big Thunder Mountain Railroad at Magic Kingdom. And uh, I've had two or three emails about this, so it, it must be there. And I haven't been able to find it. A friend and I tried to find it recently, and we couldn't spot it. Evidently, it's on the second hill that you climb. Uh, on, on the ride, on the, and it's off to the right side of the of your uh, train of the vehicle. And supposedly there's a uh, there's a Mickey antenna topper sitting in the rocks off to the right uh, of of the right. And co- of course it goes by fast. And both people or the three people that have written me 
they, uh, you know, they're going by fast enough they can't get a photo of it, but it, evidently it's silver and it's an antenna topper type uh, Mickey sitting there, uh, head and ears Mickey, classic Mickey. Like one of the ones you can and actually buy in the store, like the ones... That's what they say, uh, and again, I haven't seen a photo of it. The, the, the folks that have spotted it say it goes by really fast, and their impression is is that it's an antenna topper, classic Mickey, silver, uh, like you put on your antenna. And what I, what I don't know is if, uh, and that's a relatively recent sighting, and I don't know if somebody just threw it out there, you know what I mean, uh, uh, off the uh, off their vehicle and it's just sitting there. It's not a, it may not have been officially put there by an Imagineer or a cast member, so it may not last. But enough people have emailed me about this. I'm saying, hey, I, I want to get some more information about this. If some of the listeners can uh, can remember this, it's evidently on the second hill that you climb off to the right of your vehicle and uh, look in the boulders and look for a silver antenna topper. Maybe we can get a photo of it. And uh, if it sticks around, uh, then, you know, we'll count it as a hidden Mickey. It sounds pretty cool to me. Yeah, but kids, don't don't start throwing, you know, things that are Mickey-shaped out of your ride vehicles. No, 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 don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> don't do that. Uh, actually, they're, they're cleaned up fairly rapidly. Actually, uh, Lou, uh, a couple of the people uh, that uh, email me fairly often say they've tried to create hidden Mickeys. Uh, there was one woman that... Uh, put some rocks uh, together in front of, uh, the, of uh, the land pavilion, uh, and she sent me a photo of it, but it didn't last. You know, I mean, I, I don't, if it's not official, the cast members are probably not going to allow it to stay. Hmm. Well, you know what, that actually brings me up to, to a question that I was going to ask you, because I was in Walt Disney World this past weekend, and while I was online to check in to Port Orleans Riverside, the... Uh, the big swinging fans that hang uh, above the lobby area have two classic tricircle Mickeys on them. And I was listening to the people's conversation. Yes, I was eavesdropping basically on the people behind me as they were talking. And the, the, the man and woman were somewhat arguing because he's saying, well, it's not a hidden Mickey because it's, it's so obvious that it's technically <laughs> not a hidden Mickey. And my question is, and I was almost going to interject, but didn't want to be rude, even though I was eavesdropping already. But, it, you know, by definition, if it fits your three circle criteria of the big head and the two smaller ears, even if it's in plain sight, it, that is a, it's still considered a hidden Mickey, isn't it? Lou, uh, <laughs> in my own uh, opinion about that, I, and I've reviewed thousands and thousands of photos and images. Uh, there, there is a, a, a blurry line between a decorative Mickey and a hidden Mickey. Now, the, the ones you mentioned, I consider those hidden Mickeys, Lou, because most people don't see them, to be honest. They're on the ceiling. Most people aren't looking up there. You're talking about the ones on the ceiling, right? The ceiling fans? Right, the big kind yes. of paddle fans. Yes. Uh, I consider those hidden Mickeys because they're, they're not blatantly obvious to most people, and most people don't see them. So I consider those hidden Mickeys, absolutely. But uh, there are others that are, are, are more blatantly in plain, plain sight. They're huge, large. Uh, I, I, they're obviously not hidden. So I would consider those decorative if they're, if they're too obvious. So it, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a blurry line, and people have challenged me on that on my website. Some of the, some of the images I count as hidden Mickeys, uh, honestly, are in deference to the, uh, to the kiddos, you know, the, the young ones. Right. Uh, four or five, six, seven years old, had to write me about hidden Mickey. 
Well, I, I'm going to probably count some of those as hidden Mickeys because, uh, you know, a seven-year-old wrote me about it, and I'm, I like kids, and if they feel strongly about it, I'm probably going to count it. But, um, frankly, most uh, obvious Mickey shapes I don't put on my website, I don't include in my books because they're, they're decor Mickey, decorative Mickeys. Now, what would you consider a blatantly obvious one? Like, is the one on the in the lobby floor of the Polynesian in the stone? Is that so obvious, or is there something? No, that... no, that's a wonderful hidden Mickey. Okay, that's a wonderful hidden Mickey, Lou. It's uh, it's it's subtle enough that a lot of people don't see it. Uh, you know, it blends in with the tiles and and the flagstones. That's a beautiful hidden Mickey, in my opinion. Now, one I came across recently. I believe it was at Tokyo Disneyland, was a good example in the same photo. It was, a, it was a photo from one of the buses, the resort buses from Tokyo Disneyland. And when you're, when you're on the bus, and, and, and if you can picture a photo down the uh, aisle of the bus from front to back, the overhead handles that people would hang on to if they couldn't find a seat, you know, mm-hmm. they were Mickey-shaped. But they were really big. They were large. And... You know, I consider those decorative Mickeys because people would see them on the bus. They get on the bus, they see the Mickey shape, their hands would be on it. But behind, in, in the background of that photo, is a vent in the back of the bus. It's uh, in the upper part of the bus, and there's a, uh, there's a vent or a grill up there. It has a really small, classic Mickey in the vent. Now, most people would not see that, and that, that to me is a great example of a hidden Mickey. And so, in one photo, you have a, you have a decor Mickey, decorative Mickey, and a hidden Mickey. Uh, uh, and it's on my website. It's on Tokyo Disneyland section. And if people want to see a, a, a real contrast between a decorative decor Mickey and a hidden Mickey, that that's a good good photo to examine. Hmm. All right, there you go. All right, what about um, tell us one of the the really good new hidden Mickeys that that you found recently, or that somebody pointed out to you in Walt Disney World. Well, you know, I uh, I have a friend uh, that uh, happens to be a great photographer, uh, Bill Iadonesi, uh, who goes to Disney World quite often. He lives in St. Cloud. He writes for Mickey News. He's living the dream. He's living the Lou dream. He used to live in New Jersey. I used to see him at my book signings up here. He retired and moved to Disney World. <laughs> Absolutely. And he, he's a Disney fanatic like me and you. And he lives uh, close by and goes fairly often. And he helps me uh, verify hidden Mickey posts that I get on my website. Well, there was one that people were were mailing me about. Uh, it was on it was on the moon in the Peter Pan's flight in the Magic Kingdom. When when uh, when you're on your vehicle soaring over London, off to the left is the moon, and you see Peter and his entourage flying from left to right across the moon, you know, shadows across the moon. Right. You can remember that image. Mm-hmm. Well, there's a classic Mickey shadow on that moon. And uh, I tried for years to get a fo- photograph of that moon, but, you know, the moon rotates. Right. And the shadows move, and your car moves, and it's just a, it's, uh, it's hard to capture it. But Bill got a photo of it. I haven't put it on my website yet, but... Wow, what a beautiful uh, hidden Mickey, classic Mickey shadow on the moon. It's unbelievable. Now, I, you know, what I don't know is that um, if every vehicle can see that, 
you know, because the moon rotates, and I don't know if it rotates and, you know, synchronized to the uh, to the vehicles, but it's a classic Mickey shadow on the um, on, on the photo he sent me is is on the right side of the moon, um, and it's blatantly obvious if if you know where to look. Yeah, it's and, just and, a beautiful hidden Mickey. And I guess, like you said, the timing has to be right, and you have to be looking for it because there's so much to see Correct. in that scene that you might not be staring at the moon long enough to, to try and see. Yeah, well, one thing Mickey. I was looking for was maybe a tiny little black uh, plastic Mickey uh, above the characters, but this is a large shadow black, uh, well, sort of a grayish shadow classic Mickey on the moon's surface. So next time you're on the ride, uh, absolutely look for it, because it is a wonderful example of a hidden Mickey. Hard to see. We're going to have to try and check that out again, uh, maybe during Mouse Fest one night. Like we did a couple of years ago when we, were, when we were riding Peter Pan's flight at 12.30 in the morning together. Yes, yes, <laughs> absolutely. You know, one thing, one, thing I, one thing I grapple with a lot, Lou, is um, no, nobody debates the, the side profile Mickey images, the full-faced Mickey images, those are beautiful and wonderful and nobody would debate that. But these uh, classic Mickey images, uh, constant debate about those. And I'm really resisting uh, accepting a classic Mickey where all the circles are the same size. I I just can't, can't can't get into that. You know, and, and I've, I've read, i studied about that, and, and architecture blew for centuries. There's a three-circle image that's been used in design. It's called trefoil, and it's, it's three circles that are the same size. They all touch each other. And you, you know what I'm talking about, that, sure. that kind of image. Uh, you can visualize it, what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. And it's called a trefoil. It's, it's centuries old, and it's a, it's a common image used in... Um, and architecture and decor. Well, a lot of the images people spot and send me really are more trefoils than, than classic Mickey's. So, and one that several people have, have written me about is um, on the Figment ride in Epcot in the Imagination Pavilion. Uh, when you go through the site room, there's, there are uh, below the table, when you're in the, in the site room, there's a table in front of you. Um, below the table there are some spotlights mm-hmm. and there are three of them there and I've looked at that I've taken photos of it uh, because it kind of you kind of want it to be a hidden Mickey you know I mean there's three <laughs> three spotlights there and uh, but they're all the same size as far as I can determine and and he, here's my here's my feeling really Lou about this if an artist can make a side profile Mickey face to be clear and, un, and you know and, and not debatable or or a full frontal face of Mickey Mouse or Mickey body image surely they can make three circles look like Mickey's head and ears right. you know what I'm saying right. if it's going to be a, a, a purposeful hidden Mickey placed by an artist or an imagineer I like to think that they uh, are, are skilled enough to make the head larger than the ears mm-hmm. so that I, I'm sticking to that and that you know I I really, that's one of my rules, and so far, I, I, I'm not bending on that as far as uh, what what counts as a classic Mickey image. Right, and, and intent obviously plays a big part in, in making that determination. Intent, oh yes, oh yes, absolutely. 
you know, on my website, I have the questionable hidden Mickey section, and uh, people can vote on questionable uh, images. And there's one, uh, you know, that keeps coming up. It's in it's the uh, three circle. There's two images of three circles in the tile at the uh, rock and roller coaster entrance. Mm-hmm. You know, once you go in, inside the building along the entrance queue, you look down and there's there's a tile floor and there's on uh, both sides of the tile floor there's three circles and uh, they're they're all the same size it's tr- it's a trefoil image but people say they look at it and they say those are the only three circle images in the whole tile thing it has to be on purpose you know it has to be a hidden mickey it has to be a classic mickey so and most people on my side have voted for it <laughs> so <laughs> i'm really wrestling with this one Lou. i'm having nightmares about it i tell you but i don't know you know, I, I just think, you know, if an artist wanted it to be a, a, a Mickey image, he would have made the, or she would have made the head larger than the ears. Exactly. I'm still sticking to that. Well, you, you I are, can't waver from that. That's, well, listen, and you are the ultimate source. You are the ultimate uh, determiner as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> Um, but if you like Hidden Thank Mickeys you. and you like searching for Hidden Mickeys, there's plenty of different things that you can do either while you're home or while you're in the parks to kind of get your Hidden Mickeys fixed. When you're not in Walt Disney World, by all means, head on over to HiddenMickeysGuide.com. Steve, you've got thousands of Hidden Mickeys on there. And the thing that I like is that the site's interactive, that people can not only submit their own, but they could vote on ones that they think are or should not be considered Hidden Mickeys. You Correct. obviously have... Your Hidden Mickey's Field Guide to Walt Disney World. You just came out with your Hidden Mickey's Field Guide to Disneyland. Right. Each has right. hundreds of Hidden Mickey's in them. Correct. The other thing, too, and, and this is really a, a real treat if you get to be there. If you are going to be down in Walt Disney World during Mouse Fest, Steve, you are going to be there. You have your yes. world-famous Hidden Mickey's Hunt in all the four theme parks. I highly, highly recommend that you we circle those on your car. Co- yeah, I really, really enjoy going to those. There's, there's nothing like see- seeking out Hidden Mickey's and voting on Hidden Mickey's with the man himself. And who knows, you might be able to point one out to Steve that may make it into the book or the website. So uh, by all means, go to mousefest.org and you can find out a list of all of Steve's yeah. things. Last there. year, just last year, a... Uh, a- 12, 13-year-old boy, I, I don't, he was about that age, we were walking through uh, the beach club, uh, Solarium, and he found a new hidden Mickey in, in the, uh, one of the, one of the uh, pictures on the wall there you that go. nobody so, had seen before. So he easy. Found it, it's right in front of our group. It was great. It was wonderful. So easy, a 12-year-old can do it. So. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> Of course, make sure you go and visit HiddenMickeysGuide.com. You go visit often because Steve updates his site all the time with new Hidden Mickeys. And by all means, if you have some that you want to submit, you can go ahead and submit it right there online. Steve, thank you, as always, for coming on the show. We will talk to you probably next month. Have you back on again. And uh, we'll do this again. This is always a lot of fun, buddy. Thanks. It's a lot of fun for me. Thanks. Well, hello there, WDW Radio Show listeners. Eric Hollister from Geomouse.com, and it is update time for challenge number eight in our Walt Disney World Lou Mangiello Half Marathon Mile series. We want to thank Jonathan Dichter last week for his input in challenge number eight for the voices behind the magic. Uh, What we're going to go ahead and do is we're going to post the answers on geomouse.com so you can go and check and see if you got them right. But what we went ahead and did, of course, was put all the right answers together. 
and we drew a name. This week's winner is Darren Whitko, and Darren Whitko has decided to name his mile marker as mile marker number eight. This here's the wildest mile in the marathon. That will be the mile marker for mile marker number eight, and Darren will win the Walt Disney World Trivia's Books, Volumes 1 and 2, signed by Lou Mangello. Yes, he's still training for the marathon. Yes, he's still running, as far as I know. You also receive a WaltDisneyWorld.com t-shirt, a trading pin, and also a lanyard. You are also going to receive Peter Pan and the Jungle Book on DVD. You will receive a certificate of dedication marking mile marker number 8 as this here's the wildest mile in the marathon. And also your name will be entered into the grand prize drawing. And stay tuned for later in the show when we introduce the next challenge and we also announce what that grand prize will be. So congratulations to Darren Whitko for winning mile number eight in the half marathon mile challenge. Stay tuned later in the show for challenge number nine. Take it. We're going to send it back to Lou. As part of my continuing series where I get the, the wonderful opportunity to interview true Disney legends, my next special guest is a man whose career with Disney spanned almost four decades and whose story is truly remarkable. Some of us either have had or know of the dream of starting out at a company and moving on and up the ladder to eventually achieving something special on a completely different level. Well, my next special guest did just that while working for the Walt Disney Company. He's someone who has truly lived the dream by taking on a summer job as a ticket taker in Disneyland to eventually working for the company for 38 years in a number of different roles, including many at Walt Disney World. Those accomplishments led to him receiving Disney's highest honor, the naming of him of a Disney legend. So I'm pleased to welcome Bill Sully Sullivan to the WDW radio show. Mrs. Hello. And thank you for that beautiful introduction. Well, thank you for coming on and, and taking a few minutes just to, to chat with me today. And My pleasure. Like I said during your introduction, I mean, you, you really have lived the dream of starting out as a young man who took on a summer job to somebody with his own window on Main Street. Uh, tell us kind of how you started <laughs> with the company. Well, and it, it was interesting because I was working in, in Anaheim, California in the aircraft industry. At, uh, I can't remember the name of the place now. And, but uh, the guy that interviewed me at Disneyland, Chuck Whalen, uh, had just left there. Uh, the weekend before, and so they hired me, and uh, uh, it gave it gave the wardrobe mistress a little bit of a problem because I'm only five foot eight, and I had a thirty four inch waist, and I didn't hit fit the the pattern that was turned out. <laughs> but uh, thank God, thank God for Lou. She she took care of me, and she always adjusted my pants and stuff like that. But it was interesting because I got to start at the at the at the Jungle Cruise, uh, and yeah, the Jungle Cruise are all the big guys. Uh, and you had to be somewhat of an extrovert and not to work on the jungle cruise because uh, we just kept, we took three trips an hour uh, or three trips and then take one off and and uh, the trips lasted seven minutes at that time and uh, so we'd get a quick break and then get back on the boats and and it it, it was fun because we never knew what was going to happen and we we had the opportunity to help build the place like they gave us 
when we started, we didn't have much of a script. So we, the guys all got together and kind of wrote, wrote our own script, and then they brought in a professional, and he tried to change it all, and we stayed with our own scripts because we liked them better. But <laughs> you had to be somewhat of a rogue to be there, too. But uh, we had some real characters. We had uh, worked on the Jungle Cruise. We had a, a gentleman that had spent 15 years in Marrakesh in the, in the oil fields. We had a gentleman, uh, Don Weir, who uh, was the first one to grow a beard. And he came in one morning, and he had comedians tied around his neck on a little wire. And, and we had Tex, who was just a, a jockey. He would take a normal trip was seven minutes. And he his trips would last four minutes, and you know it's just stuff like that, and there's a bunch of nuts working there, really. And this was very early on in, actually, you know, the the did the opening of Disney because, as the story goes, from what I understand, you basically uh, on Sunday night you watch the opening ceremonies for Disneyland. Less than a week later, you go down and apply for a job. The Disneyland opened on the seventeenth, and I went to work there on the twenty seventh. And uh, I spent two and a half years in the jungle uh, as a jungle bunny and then uh, had the opportunity to move around the park and work a lot of the different attractions. And then I was promoted to what we used to refer to as a yo-yo supervisor. We'd <laughs> go up, we'd be promoted and go on salary uh, uh, in the peak periods because we couldn't afford to keep me up year-round. And there was about a half a dozen of us like that. And Today we'd be a supervisor wearing a suit and tie, and tomorrow we'd be back in costume. And we did that for a couple of years, and, and, and finally uh, in 59, when we did the rededication and, and opened the Matterhorn and the subs and the monorail, I was promoted on a permanent basis on Main Street uh, as an assistant supervisor. And uh, fortunately, I was at the right place at the right time, and, and I, you know, I guess I had the personality and the, and the drive and the initiative to to uh, get promoted by up, up and away. And, well, uh, yeah. In the meantime, you know, and, and, and going up, we, uh, I got picked to go uh, and do a couple of uh, premieres up in Hollywood and crowd control working with the press. Uh, we got to tour John Kennedy and Bobby Kennedy uh, and a lot of the dignitaries that Walt would come down and host. Uh, unfortunately, we didn't get to uh, see our Russian friend uh, but that's all right. Uh, it be, was it Gorbachev? No, it wasn't Gorbachev. It was Khrushchev. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, uh, we got picked for uh, Squaw Valley. Uh, uh, there were three of us that went up to Squaw Valley and worked up there for six weeks in and, uh, and, uh, security of the valley uh, because they forgot to hire any security people, so we had to put <laughs> together a team and ID, and we did that. Uh, and that was for the Winter Olympics, the 60, uh, 1960 Winter Olympics up in uh, Squaw Valley, uh, up in, in in Northern California. Great time, great time. Learned a lot. Met some great people. That's uh, where we met Willie Scheffler when we were going to be talking about doing the uh, uh, the program up in uh, uh, in the mountains that Walt wanted to build, uh, but the Sierra Club shot us down and couldn't do that. So we went on from there. But then we got to go back to the World's Fair, uh, spent a year back there. I'd never been east of the Mississippi, and uh, I got a phone come up from my boss one day, and he says, Sully, he says, sell your house, both your cars, and be ready to go in 30 days. <laughs> I said, where am I going? He says, you're going back to the World's Fair. 
and uh, you're going to be the assistant manager of the four Disney World's Fair uh, shows back there. And so we went back, and my family and my kids were clean for nine months because we lived in an apartment. And my daughter started, my oldest daughter started kindergarten in PS99 in New York mm. and uh, in Queens. Uh, and that was a great experience. Uh, again, we met some great people and made some good friends and learned a lot. I, I can only imagine, like you said, about the experience that you had, not only working at the parks, but being able to go outside the parks to things like the Olympics and to the World's Fair, that obviously would have long-lasting uh, you know, effects on the theme parks worldwide because of, of what Walt put there. And speaking of Walt, you know, how closely, if at all, did you work with Walt? And you know, what was it like to work um, for him and with him? Well, we always knew when Walt was around and, and gained a lot of knowledge just through osmosis and from what we heard and what we saw. And, and when we were in the early days of, of Disneyland, um, we, our operating hours worked from 9 to 9, and we worked seven days a airway with us for a seven-day shift. And uh, uh, it, was, it was interesting because in the, in those cute, foggy California nights would come aboard and you couldn't see across Main Street. And Walt would be just down walking the park and seeing what was going on. We'd be sitting around there, and there'd be nobody in the park hardly. And so Walt would come down and sit on the boats and shoot the breeze with the guys and just see what our attitudes were and what our opinions were. And, and uh, he got to look at us, and, and we were kind of the reprobates of, of Disneyland. And we helped start the, the guys on the Jungle Cruise help start the grooming standards down here because he didn't like our haircuts and our beards and our mustaches. <laughs> so, <laughs> but he was, he was a neat guy. Uh, he was, uh, he knew what he wanted and he'd talk to people and it was interesting to watch him because, uh, he, he, he didn't want people to do special things for him. He would just want to walk the park and, and if he was dressed up in his blue suit and his smoke tree ranch tie, uh, he was just out visiting the guests. And if he had his blue pinstripe pants on, his old leather jacket, and his boondockers, and his, his straw hat, he was working. And he'd go over to Tom Sawyer Island, and he'd go out in the, in the, in the painted desert and look things over and, and then go back to the designers and design something new. Uh, but it was interesting. It was uh, You always knew it when he was around, though, because the guy's security would call in and a word would go out over the radio that there was a code W. That was I mean Walt was in the park or Code R I mean Roy was in the park, <laughs> but uh, the studio would always call us and say he's on his way down. And about thirty five forty minutes later, he'd be arriving at the at the Harbor Gate or at uh, West Street Gate. And so uh, we always knew when he was around, and it was interesting because he he would pop in and talk and and it was interesting because he would people would see him in his in his in his uh, blue suit and. They'd crowd around him for for, uh, for autographs and stuff like that. And we'd walk up and say, Mr. Disney, this way, please. And he'd, then he'd correct us. He says, my name's Walt. I'm Mr. Disney. There's only one Mr. Disney. That's Mr. Toad. And later on, was Mr. Lincoln, too. But uh, he was a good guy, and he'd appreciate it. And we'd walk him out the back, and he'd come out another gate and go see the park someplace else. He'd wander the park at night. I worked graveyard for eight months in graveyard security, and I'm rambling a lot, but it just popped into my mind that I get this call over the radio. Uh, I'm sitting in the office and by the dispatcher, and there was a security host out in the park, and he says, hey, uh, there's some guy out here who says he's Walt Disney. He was a brand new guy. 
And it, this was like, you know, after midnight, you know, like 2 o'clock in the morning. And uh, uh, I said, uh-oh. So I jumped on my bike, and I ran out there where he was, and it was sure it was Walt. And Walt looked up and said, oh, God, Sully, God, thank God it's you. He said, this guy's about to arrest me. <laughs> <laughs> so we walked in. We walked him up to his apartment up above Main Street, up above uh, the fire station, and said good night. But uh, he's a great guy. He was a very warm individual person like that. And everybody that I ever have spoken to uh, about that, that knew Walt, described him exactly the same way that he wasn't, you know, what you might perceive as being, you know, your boss or an executive. He was very warm and he was very. Um, he didn't look down on anybody. He he cared about what everybody thought and their opinions, uh, and, and treated everybody with respect. And when he, when he, you know, it's interesting you say that because when 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 he'd come and see us, you know, and when it was, it was slower, you know, there's nothing going on. And he'd say, "Well, what do you think about this?" But he did that at the studio also. There was one guy that he worked with. We heard that he was a janitor uh, in the, in the animation building, and Walt would go up to him. He'd go up to him and say, well, what do you think about this, Rufus? What do you think about these? And he said, well, I was looking at some films, and some of the boys are doing some pretty good work. And maybe it was funny, but he would talk to everybody and get opinions. It's, it's wonderful. I mean, obviously, you know, clearly everybody, the one thing everybody says, too, is, he, like you said, he knew what he was doing. And being able to draw oh, yeah. from people that had the firsthand experience in the parks or at the studios um, Not only that, but he would walk the park and he would stand and he would smoke a cigarette and lean on a trash can, and and people would walk up to him and say, "Hi, Mister Disney," and he'd sign their autograph. He'd say, "Well, did you have a good time today?" Or he'd he'd strike up a conversation with them. Well, what can we do to make it better? How can I make you happy? And he he talked to the guests and and said, "You know, how can we make it better for you? Not for him, but for you." And, and you know that was that was important. Take like he always said, "Take care of the guests, so take care of you." You know, as you tell that story, a smile was coming on my face, as I'm, and I'm, I'm sure uh, on, on listeners as well, because you can't fathom, you know, seeing Walt Disney in the park and walking, not only walking up to him and getting his autograph, but him saying, well, what do you think? You know, <laughs> are you having a good time? Or what do you think about this? Uh, you know, and that Walt obviously cared and, and took your opinion, and uh, it, it had an impact on what he did in the future. Absolutely, absolutely. But uh, after the World's Fair in 64 and 65, at some point, you were once again relocated, and this time to Florida. Uh, when and why did the company move you down there? Well, when we're, the, word got, you know, the word got out in, in, at, the, at the World's Fair that something was happening on the East Coast. Nobody knew what it was. And that's when, that's when uh, Walt Disney World was called Project X, and Bob Foster was down there buying, buying properties. And... Uh, uh, and uh, so uh, it was announced that we were going to do something in Florida, and I told the boss, I said, I'd like to be one of the first guys down there. He said, no, he said, you've got too much to learn. So I went back to Disneyland, and that was in 64, or 65, rather, and uh, I got moved around a lot, and I got a lot of training, and I got a lot of exposure, and uh, uh, it came one day that uh, I was moved over from, from, from uh, as manager of, Fantasyland uh, to project development, and that's where we started providing input into WDI, or at that time it was called WED, uh, said for Walter Elias Disney, uh, for input for operating input uh, into uh, uh, WED for uh, uh, Walt Disney World and for the Magic Kingdom particularly. 
and I got to work on the design and the layout of, of uh, Fantasyland because that was my area. And uh, unfortunately, uh, we had it, Roly Crump and I, we had it laid out beautifully, and we were starting to run out of money, so we had to shrink things down some. So that's how we got that little narrow passageway over there. We, they dug the, it was shrunk too much. <laughs> Uh, but, but then we, you know, I, I was sent down here to do different, uh, jobs, uh, or, or for Joe, I, my, my title was, I was senior, senior staff assistant to the vice president. And, uh, uh I meant I meant I was a high priced gopher. So I did a little bit of everything. I, uh, came down and set up the post office down here for, uh, for Walt Disney World and, uh, for, uh, for Joe Fowler and the construction. And, uh, I came down and uh, I went to work for the hotel company for a while, and uh, we took over the Hilton Inn South on International Drive to get some exposure to uh, the guests that were here and uh, and uh, purchasing and marketing of, uh, of the different stuff. Uh, I came down, helped open up the preview center with Holscher, and just you know, just very sundry things. And uh, uh, I did the first. Uh, what was it, uh, the uh, uh, Legislators Weekend. Uh, I did that for Jack Lindquist. And so I just did a lot of different stuff, and that, well, that was fun because I, I got to get exposed to a lot of different people, a lot of different things, got to do a lot of different stuff. Right, and, and you clearly had a hand in so many of the different elements that ended up becoming Walt Disney World. And like you said, you mentioned Fantasyland. I didn't even realize that you had such a hand in, in the design and the layout of, uh, of well, Fantasyland. Well, I, desi- I designed the main gate, the main entrance uh, of uh, the park, uh, not only the park, but for the, uh, the ticket sales, then then for the park, and then uh, uh, like the width of Main Street. The Main Street is 12 feet wider than the one in Disneyland. Because we wanted to be able to do bigger, bigger and better parades, and wanted to have more sidewalk, so we added a few feet here and a few feet there, and made it easier for our guests to get up and down the street and still do our parades. Hmm. So, yeah, I, I got to do a lot of different stuff. And obviously, I was on, on that, three, four years, something like that. And uh, then when uh, I was assigned to the hotel company, I moved down here, and uh, then about six months later. Uh, I was assigned to security and fire prevention, and uh, uh, we hired all the uh, this first 75 security hosts that we had and, and set up security uh, and set up a liaison with the fire department um, and the local the local sheriff's department and, you know, just different stuff like that. So I had fun. I learned a lot. I mean, i got to just go off on a tangent for a little bit because... Going back to when you first started with the company, you were 19 or so, correct? I was 19 years old. Now, you've done all these different things. You have all these different roles in the company from ticket taker to everything else that you've described. Was your background in anything that may have given you a leg up, or did you get basically all of your experience and training while you worked for the company? I worked on, when I was in high school, my major was architecture. Uh, I worked uh, uh, at my uncle's chicken ranch for four years during high school, and then for a year after I got out of high school, and finally he said, go get a grill job. So I went and went <laughs> to work in, in the aircraft industry, and I did that for six, eight months, a year, something like that. And, and you know, I was used to working outside and enjoying the sun, and I was in uh, a building all day, and uh, you work, you know, from, from 7 to 3.30, and you got a break in the morning and one in the afternoon and lunch, and Otherwise, you were at the you know if you 
if you wanted to go to the restroom, you had to ask your boss. I didn't like that. <laughs> so I found me another job. And uh, I went to uh, uh, to interview with Chuck Whalen, and he hired me. And 39 and a half years later, I retired. I'll say, cl- clearly it worked out pretty well for you. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I had a good time. We, we worked hard and played hard. But, uh, you know, you stayed down in Florida, and you were there for not only the opening of Walt Disney World and the Magic Kingdom, you were also there for the opening of Epcot. And obviously, we were just celebrating the 25th anniversary a couple of weeks ago, so this right. is something I went that... Up, they invited me out for that, and I went out for that. Right now, I, I, I also... Worked, I, I'm sorry, go ahead. I worked on Epcot Center for four years prior to uh, its opening, and again, I was back providing operational input uh, into the attractions and, and all that, Uh and uh, then we had, when we got, we, we started developing a, an inventory system for the show installation, and I was in charge of Pico also, and I had another couple guys working for me that, that we promoted later on. Uh, but uh, we, I, I was, at opening of Epcot Center, I was in charge of all the, all the operations, and uh, uh, that was fun. And, and anything that happened, or any of the other divisions that, wanted to do something for Epcot, uh, went through me. And we went, went to uh, WDI, or WED at the time, or, um, and uh, we gave them this input. And uh, it was, you know, and the boss said, you know, it, it's, it's your baby, and you're going to run it, so you make it right. And don't give me any bitching about <laughs> how it goes. <laughs> and so that's why I got involved in doing that, and uh, we got to know a lot of their good people in the other divisions. And uh, I, we assigned each each division, which there was nine of, uh, 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 assigned a, uh, somebody to give me the input, and then we'd go together and, and we'd go to WDI and we'd give them that kind of input and, and the design. I didn't approve any of the designs, or you know, if it didn't, but if I didn't like it or it didn't work with the, the operating areas, we'd make some changes, and then uh, so. Uh, I did that for four years, and I ran it for two years, and I went back to the Magic Kingdom and spent ten years in the Magic Kingdom, primarily running the Magic Kingdom and, and doing a lot of training. And uh, that was one of my main, main thrusts at the end there was, was, was training my, our new people. And that was uh, in, back in 1987, right? You became vice president of uh, Magic Kingdom? Yes, uh-huh. Uh, one question I want to go back to um, to the opening of Epcot real quick because okay. um, I, I had heard that that and this is something that I've never seen before I've never heard it but that an interview was conducted um, during the opening ceremonies with Walt's widow Lillian who yes, uh, I understand normally did not give interviews but you were the person that that made that happen is that right that's correct that, that was we you know I got thinking you know so, uh, that the, the boss wasn't around. And that you know that Mrs. Disney you know, had a great influence on what took place in the company uh, in the early days, and then you know how she'd keep, you know keep Walt straight and just like all wives do, their husbands. And so I says I talked to uh, Bob Allen Jr. I says let's do a film with Mrs. Disney, and he says you know she's never been interviewed. We don't have any interviews with her. I said well all she could say is no. So when and Diane was there. Uh, Lillian was there, and their oldest granddaughter was there. And so I asked Diane, I said, what would your mom think about doing an interview with us? And she says, well, well, what's it for? And I says, well, for posterity, and we'd show it to our people, and so they could get to know your mom. 
And uh, she said, let's go ask. So she was in a, in a golf cart touring before opening. And uh, she says, Tully, ask mom. So I said, Mrs. Disney. And I laid it, I laid it on her. And, and she says, who's it for? And I said, well, I'm asking you. And it's for something I can show my people and show my the young guys and gals coming up. And she says, it's not for the press. I said, no, ma'am. And I said, I guarantee you that. And uh, she says, okay. And so we set it up. That uh, and we did it at eight o'clock one morning in the gardens of the English Pavilion, which were gorgeous. And uh, Mrs. Disney was there, Diane was there, and your oldest granddaughter, Janine, Janine, Jean, Jenny, something like was that. Was it I Jenny? Yeah, maybe Jenny or something. I don't, it was the oldest granddaughter, and she was a sweetheart. And uh, uh, Bob Allen conducted the interviews, and uh, uh, I finally found the tape. I was talking to one guy at the NFFC convention, and he says, well, I've got the tape. I says, no. And now this is going, going back to, what, 25 years ago? Right. We did that tape. I had never seen it in 25 years. No kidding. And he says, here it is. I went to a meeting the other night. He says, here's that tape you've been looking for. So I've got it on my desk, and I'm going to review it and take a look at it. Wow. So that's the only tape I know of that is of Mrs. Disney, and I've never seen it before. I was going to say, that's never been shown to the public, has it? Absolutely not. Wow. You, you want to talk Absolutely about not. it? You want to talk about not only a, a wonderful opportunity to, to set up the interview, but to now have the, what, what may be the, very, the only tape in existence of it is, uh, is amazing. I think we sent one to, Lil, uh, to Diane, but I, that, well, and, and probably, uh, uh, let's see, uh, Sharon, mm-hmm. uh, when she was alive. But as far as I know, that, that's the only ones I know of. Wow. Uh, we, we checked with uh, Dave Smith in the archives. He didn't have one. Hmm. So, anyway. And I assume you won't, so, be putting, you won't be putting that up on eBay anytime soon. I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> So, uh, in addition to, to you know, working at Disneyland, I mean... That's a good idea. Yeah, it's right. <laughs> I, I, I promise you that you will sell one. I, I will be the very first to purchase one. But, uh, you, you know, you, you, you almost opened Disneyland for all intents and purposes, and the Magic Kingdom and Walt Disney World and Epcot and the World's Fair. You also worked overseas as well for Paris and Tokyo. I did a lot of uh, training for Jim uh, for Tokyo. I was asked to go, and I said I didn't want to go. And uh, then uh, uh, when we, he got <laughs> Jim Cora, who used to work for me uh, at Disneyland, uh, uh, he was promoted as vice president over there at uh, for um, uh, Disneyland International. That's where uh, the outfit that handled all of our uh, overseas parks. And Jim called me one day. He said this was part of the opening of, of uh, Paris or during the construction of Paris. He says, Sully, he says, come help me open this park. He says, you and I are the only ones that have ever opened a park before, and I don't have enough help. I said, nah, Jim, I don't want to. I've got a good job. And, you know, I was, I was uh, a mayor of Disneyland, and I wanted, to make, I wanted them to make me king, but they wouldn't do that. <laughs> uh, and uh, so I had a good job. And I was vice president of the Magic Kingdom at Walt Disney World. I had a great job. And so he says, well, I'll tell you what. He says, come over, spend a week, bring your wife. And uh, let's just look at the project. Famous famous last words, right? (laughs) Uh, Yeah. I said, I'll do that for you. And I got to Paris, and, you know, it was dark and dreary and rainy. And wait for us, Jackie. 
And so he said, no, she was, uh, but she was excited. My wife would do anything, any traveling that I asked her to do. And because she just, she never unpacked her bags. But we, <laughs> it was, it was, he was rotten because we t- walked down the, like uh, um, the, uh, uh, the gate from between uh, uh, Hills Brothers and, uh, and uh, the balloon shop and turned the corner in front of the Kodak shop looking down Main Street and saw the castle down there at the other end. And this, it was absolutely gorgeous. That's the most beautiful castle we've ever built, the one in Paris. And I said, oh, stuff. <laughs> and <laughs> I said, you're rotten, Cora. I said, I'll be here. And so I called my boss, and we sat down, and I, he said, well, I'll go ahead and finish where we can come on back. So I said, yeah, he needs help. I'm more than happy to go with him. And we figured out who would take my spot and ran the park while I was gone. And I said, you know, I said, oh, I have a phone call away. And uh, he says, how long are you going to be gone? I said, six, seven months, maybe eight. And uh, he says, well, we need it. And Bob, being a, a great company guy, he knew that we needed the help. And he said, okay. And uh, so he told Lunas, who was my big boss, uh, what we wanted to do. And he says, okay. So uh, as of January, January 1st, I jumped on the airplane and uh, flew to Paris and uh, spent seven months in Paris opening that up. Now, that was an interesting experience. It was cold, rainy, snowy, cold. Ah, <laughs> there was a cold in my life. Come to find out the Marne Valley, where the, where the park is, was called the Refrigerator of Paris. And <laughs> but, it, but it's a gorgeous park, and it was beautifully done. Uh, the, the designers did a magnificent job with way overboard on it, but hey, that's what Michael and Frank wanted, and uh, they got it, and it's just absolutely gorgeous. And I haven't been over there in 15 years, so I hope it's as good, if not better than it was. Yeah, I've the landscaping, heard... Luke Bear, who, was, who came over and studied under Katie Warner, who was my horticulturist at Walt Disney World, Luke Bear uh, is French-Canadian, and he was hired to be their landscaper over there, and, he, and so Luke came over and studied with us and worked with us for about six months and then went over to uh, to Paris and did a magnificent job in landscaping that park and maintaining it, too. And like I said, I've, I've heard as well about the castle just being absolutely magnificent and the park really coming into its own and, and being a very beautiful place to kind of walk through. But when you start talking about other parks that, that are beautiful and accomplishments that, that Disney's done with their parks, Tokyo comes to mind because everybody I know that's gone over to Tokyo has come back just awestruck at how beautiful Tokyo is. And it's, Tokyo beautiful Disney it's, it's beautiful because it's got its own little personality. And it's got all these neat little Japanese guys and gals running around taking care of the place. And Main Street is, is covered over like an arcade, and which gives it a different feel. And the food is phenomenal over there. Uh, and, and the merchandise, they've, they've done an interesting thing with their merchandise. And uh, uh, so they do, they do their... Uh, each one of the parks has its own personality. And they were designed that way. And people say, well, you know, which park do you like the best? You know, of course I love the Magic Kingdom, and of course I love the Jungle Cruise at Disneyland. Um, you know, and there I, uh, I'm closer to the Disneyland and the Magic Kingdom, uh, and Walt Disney World and Paris. So, uh, you know, uh, and let's face it, Walt touched the one and touched Disneyland, and nobody else. And that, you know, that 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 made it what it was, or what it is. Very true. Yeah. 
but it, I, you know, I, I can only imagine that in in the thirty eight year plus career that you had at the company, the amount of uh, amazing stories that you can and and probably can't <laughs> tell. But if you had to pick one, if you had to pick one of the, the most memorable stories or, or moments or, or or funniest things that's happened to you in your, in your career, what do you think that would be? Well, it's it's it's, it's very simple as far as I'm concerned. It's that there was a young lady working across the Jungle Cruise that was a cute little blonde, and uh, she was wearing a Hawaiian skirt, and uh, 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 well, Dave, let's see, uh, the 11th of October we celebrated our 49th anniversary and uh, married my wife out of Disneyland and uh, that was the greatest thing that ever happened to me and uh, but there was a lot of stuff you know it, it, it's we, we flew Tinkerbell at Disney at the Walt Disney World which we'd always wanted to do and never had never could figure out how to do it but me and Arnold Lindbergh and Hank Danes we we, had, we bootlegged it and it worked <laughs> 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 you know and just it's just being Affiliated with the opening of '59, uh, uh, we being affiliated with the uh, the opening of, 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 of Epcot Center and Walt Disney World, uh, you, you put them all in one big basket, you know. And I had I had 39 year great run, and uh, as far as I'm concerned, we were we were the gold. We had the golden years of uh, the Disney parks, and so yeah, we, not one. There's not one particular thing I could say. It was the greatest thing that ever happened to me, except marrying my wife out of there. I was going to say, you talk about living the dream. Not only are you working at Disneyland, but you meet your wife there. So it doesn't get yeah. any better and than four that. Kids, and four beautiful kids later. <laughs> there you go. There you go. And it gets even better because you, you retire in 1993. In 2005, you're inducted as a Disney legend, arguably the, the highest honor the company can give to any of its cast members. Now, more importantly, you hold a very, very rare distinction of having not one, but two windows on Main Street, USA. <laughs> Tell me how you're able to swing that one because you have Sully's, well, you have Sully, one, the, Sully's Safaris and Guide Service, where you're the chief guide, and the Windermere Fraternal Hall, which I'm going to ask you about well, specifically as well. The, the one was that they were I think they were trying to fill up windows on Main Street when they did the first <laughs> one with the Windermere guys. Uh, but then uh, I was really pleased when, when I retired that they gave me my own window and Sully's Safaris because I'm a hunter and fisherman and good stuff like that. And I was honored that way as as as, as my own my own two windows on Main Street, and uh, and I was always envious of the guys that were Disney legends. But I respected those who were because, like it, you know, that's a that's a pretty strong group with the nine old men, with the John Henches, and all those good guys that you know really started the whole company. Mm-hmm. And I you know I when when Michael called me and said, Sully, you're going to be receiving a letter in the mail that's, uh, uh, we want to make you, uh, are you a thing at Disney legend? I just fell right through it. And I just, my wife said, I've never seen you speechless. <laughs> and when you read that letter, you were speechless. And I, and, and, and I didn't give a big speech because, uh, at my reception of, of the honor, because I didn't know what to say. I, I you know, I, I was so awestruck with being a, made a Disney legend. You know, uh, it's it, it's a really great honor as far as I'm concerned, and, and very well deserved, uh, obviously. Oh, thank you. Uh, but I want to ask you specifically about the, the the other window is the Windermere Fraternal Hall. It says lodge meetings every Friday, and the charter <laughs> members are Bob Allen, Pete Cummings, Dick Evan, 
Bill Holscher, Bob Mathiason, and you, Bill Sullivan. Now, uh, Bob Allen was... Bob and Jack Olson. Oh, you're right. I those, are, those are just a bunch of fun-loving guys who were just us. You know, the guys that have been with the company for a long time, and we all lived in Windermere, and uh, 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 they just, I think they just filled up a window. I had uh, I, I have tried researching and finding out what the Windermere Fraternal Hall reference was. I said, did these guys get together? Did they meet up every Friday for for a drink after work, <laughs> or is it just it's so it's just the fact that Several you guys drinks lived in... <laughs> after work. <laughs> and a lot of us used to fish together and, and party together and work together, and our families grew up together and all that good stuff. So it's just a bunch of good guys. Do you do you, uh, you still live in Florida? You get a chance to get out to the parks at all? I I do go out to the parks occasionally, uh, but it's been quite a while. Uh, you know, I, I I don't work there anymore. And if I know if I go out there, I'd get upset and I'd start raising hell with somebody. <laughs> and I don't work there anymore. <laughs> and you know, and uh, I agree with some of the things they do, and I disagree with some of the things they do. But it's not my park anymore. It belongs to <laughs> belongs to Philip and so and McPhee and and and, and Mike. So. Uh, I don't go out there. Now we, uh, but, you know, the parks are beautiful. Yeah, we actually met um, during uh, on the eve of Epcot's 25th up in the Canada Pavilion, and having just celebrated the anniversary, and you having such close ties to the park, how do you think it compares today to what it was in 1982? Like I said, they run their park. <laughs> they want to do. I run my park. Ran my park. Away. Very to diplomatic answer, probably. <laughs> <laughs> But um, finally, Mr. Sullivan, my, my last question is, what do you think, again, you know, your, your history with the company is so storied and so remarkable and such a variety of different roles and positions that you had. What do you think you're, you're really most proud of, looking back? I was proud of the crew that I had uh, because, you know, and, and the people ask me today, they say, well, well, what do you miss out there? Do you miss, uh, you know, I said, well, you know, I, I miss my park. Uh, but I don't miss the meetings. I don't miss the politics. Uh, I don't miss the infighting, uh, and I miss my people uh, uh, because I had I had seventy five hundred of the greatest employees uh, that that, uh, that any guy could have, and you know I had almost four hundred salaried people. They're a great bunch of people. They worked hard, played hard, and you know and 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 they were just good people, and they. They carried on the Disney tradition the way it should have been, the way we trained them how to do it. And I was very proud of them. So, yeah, that, that is my people. Well, you you know, everything that you, you said kind of is the same theme that resonates through everyone that I speak to because the first thing they do is they give credit to the people that worked with them and around them. And, and kind of, you're talking about tradition, I guess that kind of is carrying on the tradition of what Walt did. Walt was a genius in the fact that he knew to surround himself with people that were incredibly talented and people from whom he could pull even more talent that they knew that they had. Walt had a philosophy, and he Walt would say that, you know, we can design, build, and create the greatest park in the world. But without the people, they're nothing. And that's absolutely right. Because, you know, uh, it, they, it, the people make the magic. It's, you know, it, the people are the ones that take care of the guests. When the kid falls down, they pick him up. Uh, when a kid gets lost, they grab it, they pick him up and, and find their mama and daddy again. Uh, the one that, that they ushers them on to the, to the attractions, and helps them, and it, it's it's the people that make it work. 
I wholeheartedly agree with you 100%. The cast members are what make um, Walt Disney World and everything that Disney does is so truly magical. So, Mr. Sullivan, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. It's always an honor to have the opportunity to chat with somebody who, like I said, is truly a Disney legend. And on behalf of myself and every other guest that continues to enjoy what you helped create, I want to say thank you very much. Thank you, and I appreciate the honor. Take care. Thank you. I make it a point not to bring much of my personal life into the show, but this week, my wife's mother lost a long and difficult battle with cancer. And I mention this for no other reason than to once again bring to your attention the DisneyWorldTrivia.com Dream Team Project. I founded this project a few years ago when my father was diagnosed with prostate cancer. Having visited Memorial Sloan Kettering Hospital with him every day for more than 10 weeks and seeing children who are suffering with this dreaded disease, I wanted to do something to help them now. So rather than pledge money for research, I wanted to be able to help give them a bit of happiness and the magic that we all enjoy right away. So since that time, I've taken a portion of the proceeds of my book sales and given it to this cause. And today, after having been able to make three children's dreams come true, we're now raising money to benefit the Make-A-Wish Foundation of America. To date, with your help and support, and monies raised during Fred Block's Magic Meet event and auction last year, we've raised almost $13,000. And in light of what's recently happened to my family, and because this is why I do what I do, I ask you to visit our show notes page, which will link you over to the DisneyWorldTrivia.com Dream Team project page. Every dollar we raise translates into really making a difference and helping a child's dream come true. I thank you in advance for any help that you can give and to everybody that's pledged your support, both financially and otherwise, a sincere and heartfelt thank you. Well, hello once again, WDW Radio Show listeners. Eric Hollister from Geomouse.com returning on this episode to introduce challenge number nine in our WDW Lou Mangiello Half Marathon Challenge Series. We're hitting that home stretch uh, on mile number nine. And this time we're going to go or we're going to ask you to go back to those digital cameras, those digital memory sticks, the scanners, the files on your hard drive, because it is another photo challenge. And this time, what we were going to ask is that you send us a photo of you or your group in front of one of the Disney mountains. And those Disney mountains are the Space Mountain, Big Thunder Mountain Railroad, Mount Melee, Expedition Everest. There's also Splash Mountain thrown in there. And I'm sure that there's a couple that I'm forgetting. But if you're in front of one of those mountains, you know, send us your photo at marathon at wdwradio.com you'll have until midnight on november 14th to get your submissions in so make sure that you not only submit the photo but also the name of mile marker number nine that you would like to have if you are chosen as the winner so this time the prize package will include both walt disney world trivia books volumes one and two by lou yes i'm still running the race i really promise you that i am mangello a DisneyWorldTrivia.com t-shirt, 
both Disney World Trading Pin and Lanyard by DisneyWorldTrivia.com. Of course, that's Lou Mangiello again. We're also going to throw in this week, speaking of the Disney Mountains, is the book Disney Mountains Imagineering at Its Peak by Jason Sorrell. We're also going to throw in, in honor of the release of Ratatouille, we're going to throw in Ratatouille, the DVD, as well as the hardcover book of the art of Ratatouille. So those will also be included in the prize pack. Your name will also be thrown into that grand prize drawing, which will take place at the end of the challenge. And stay tuned for that. And also, you will have a certificate of dedication for mile marker number nine. And of course, geomouse.com will donate $100 to the Disney World Dream Team project, which goes towards the Make-A-Wish Foundation. So again, you have until November 14th to get your submissions in. And now for all of you that have been waiting all this time to find out what is going to be the grand prize in the WDW Half Marathon Challenge Series, once this is over, all 13 winners from our Challenge Series will be put into one final drawing. And the winner of the grand prize will receive a Sorcerer Mickey Big Fig, Pirates of the Caribbean Trilogy on Blu-ray disc, all the entire collection of all Pixar movies on DVD, including the newest release, Ratatouille. And finally, a gigantic Mickey Mouse plush figure, like the ones you see at the Disney, downtown Disney uh, store. The gigantic ones, yes. Again, that is a Sorcerer Mickey Big Fig, the Pirates of the Caribbean trilogy on Blu-ray disc, so if you don't have a Blu-ray disc and you happen to win, perfect excuse to go buy one to get a Blu-ray disc player. The entire Pixar collection on DVD, like I said, including Ratatouille, and finally a gigantic Mickey Mouse plush figure. So those are the grand prizes. So again, everybody, good luck. Send in your uh, photos by November 14th. We're going to send it back to Lou and the WDW Radio Show. I want to thank everybody for all their listener feedback and emails and voicemails. If you haven't had your email responded to me by email or had it heard on the show, I appreciate your patience. I promise that I will definitely get to it. Let's go ahead and get right into the email this week. The first one comes from Goofy, who says, not the real Goofy, but a guy who calls himself Goofy, who says, Hey, love your show, long-time listener, long-time corresponder, yada, yada, yada. Insert more of the highest compliments here from Chuck Canzanari. Now, on to the question. You ready? This is the most Tweedledum question you'll get. I have a friend in her, let's say, quote-unquote, late 30s, who has been in need of therapy and frightened in her earlier years because of the characters and has remained timid in approaching characters to this day. I know, quote, the magic should come to everyone in their own time, and Disney would never want anyone to force the magic upon anyone. So, any assistance would be appreciated in helping me to get her to feel a little bit more comfortable with the characters so that we can have at least one photo from our trip with a character and her in it. Suggestions? Chuck, I agree with you. And, and normally, you know, when we talk about introducing people to characters and the fear factor or being timid about going up to it, we're talking about young children. But you're right. You know, even adults sometimes either feel awkward about going up to characters or feel that maybe they, they shouldn't. Uh, if something happened and maybe, you know, she doesn't necessarily feel like she wants to go, you have to kind of do the same thing about slowly introducing them to her. Find out what move, what Disney animated films does she like? What are some of her favorite characters? 
uh, maybe kind of do things to kind of get her introduced and get her excited about meeting, whether it's Cinderella or Captain Hook or whoever it is. Maybe a character meal might be a good place to start where she doesn't have to necessarily wait in line and go up to a character, but a character will come to her. If Winnie the Pooh's her favorite, the Crystal Palace is a perfect place. It's a lot of fun, um, and obviously the characters that are all very, very friendly will come up to the table. And if she doesn't, you know, they'll, they'll respect that as well, and they'll move away so she doesn't feel, you know, as though she has to kind of participate. Uh, what I would do, though, is when you get to, say, the Magic Kingdom, ask um, a cast member where some of the characters are, what times they'll be there, uh, you know, know kind of ahead of time where some of these characters will be, and, and for example, in Toontown where some of the meeting spots are. She can meet the princesses there. Mickey and Minnie are a great way to introduce her to the characters because she knows them and I'm sure she's familiar with them. And obviously, you know, there's nothing to be afraid or timid about. And then kind of slowly, as she starts to see the characters in and around the parks, maybe she'll be a little bit more comfortable and uh, and you'll be able to find one there. So good luck. I-, I hope it works out for her and for you as well. And I'm sure once she gets there and kind of gets surrounded by that magic that we all talk about, um, it'll come very, very naturally for her to get up and meet and greet some of our favorite characters. So, next question comes from Andrew Machuda, who says, Hey, Lou, love the show. Every week I wait for the new episodes anxiously. Just had a quick question about all of you mouse festers. I'll be heading down to Walt Disney World on the weekend of December 15th through the 17th, and I was wondering if any of the people attending Mouse Fest tend to hang around longer than the official dates. Also, I'm curious as to what kind of crowds to expect. It's strange how value season extends to the 19th, and then it's suddenly peak season the next day. Thanks for the great podcast, Andrew. Andrew, thank you. And unfortunately, you're going to be coming down just as Mouse Fest comes to a close. Uh, what a lot of people do, though, is in addition to coming down just for the Mouse Fest events, they'll either come down a little bit earlier or stay a little bit later to enjoy the holiday season kind of outside of all the, the craziness that is running around during Mouse Fest from event to event. So chances are you will find some people that definitely are going to be hanging around. What you should do is maybe if you're a member of any of the forums or you want to come by, join the forums over at DisneyWorldTrivia.com. We actually have a thread about people who are coming to Mouse Fest. They go down, they post the dates that they're going to be there, where they're staying. Go ahead, join the thread, post when you're going to be going, when you're going to be staying, uh, until and where you're staying, and chances are you'll find other people who are also going to be there, maybe people you can meet up with kind of post Mouse Fest events. As far as crowds are concerned, the crowds are very, very light during that time of year, which is one of the reasons why that we do it when we do. The only other things going on there uh, is some Pop Warner and some cheerleader stuff that really don't affect the crowds in the parks. They do sometimes affect it at some of the resorts. Uh, I think the cheerleaders are staying at Port Orleans uh, French Quarter, and I know sometimes the all-star resorts get a little crowded. Other than that, uh, it's a great time. The weather is perfect, and the crowds are very, very light. As far as the change in the, the seasons going from value to peak, well, obviously, a lot of people come down for the Christmas holidays and for New Year's. Christmas is um, arguably the, the busiest day of the year, so people start coming a few days earlier. That's why there's the change uh, from going from value to peak. Now, what you can do, though, is this is the last year you'll be able to do it. If you book a vacation, for example, and the first day of your vacation is in value season, but you extend to peak season, you're still going to pay the value season price for all the days of your trip. Now, next year, 2008, that's going to change. Each day of the week is going to have a different rate associated with it. So if you come on value season and you end on peak season, that rate is going to alter based on the exact dates of your trip. So that kind of loophole, I guess, 
will end this year. But uh, hopefully you'll have a chance to meet up with some of the people who are going to be down for MouseFest. Unfortunately, I won't be there. Would have nice to have, uh, been nice to meet up with you. But uh, I'm sure you're going to have a good time no matter what. Next question comes from Terry from Aurora, Illinois. or known as Terry T. Fromm, who says, Hey, Lou, I feel like I know you as an old friend, even though we've never met. Well, that's great, Terry. That's exactly what I want people to feel. Anyway, I love the show, but I think it's too long. Oh, well, see, now that's not how to get your question answered. But anyway, I only have so much time to listen to my podcast every week. Have to had, dropped, had to drop a number of them, but as we say in English class, you ain't one of them. Well, thank you. So anyway, here's the deal. I'm going solo to the world, arriving December 9th and leaving very late on the 13th. So, okay, going solo on the dining program, no car, using Magical Express to and from the airport, staying at All Star Music Preferred Room, close to the food and bus. I'm also set up for Mickey's Very Merry Christmas Party. I've got my Park Hopper Pass for five days, which means I can get the magic every day while in Florida, Sunday p.m. till Thursday p.m. Now, I know solo means I can hope to get into the single rider line. Solo means I can eat anytime. I have not made any reservations for meals because I'm hoping a solo person might be at an advantage, especially since it's during a value time of year. So, any recommendations or suggestions? I've sent this to two of my other favorite podcasters. Terry, you are not you are not helping your cause here. You've sent it to two of my other favorite podcasters hoping for help. If I know who one of them is, they probably won't answer this till 2009. Anyway, let me know what you recommend. Again, that's Terry from Aurora. All right, so Terry, I'm a big advocate, actually, of going to Walt Disney World alone. I know some people, you know, sometimes think I'm crazy. I say I'm going down for work, but there is something to be said for going by yourself because, like you said, you can do what you want when you want to do it without having to worry about which people in your group might not want to eat here or eat later or not may just want to sit down and relax and enjoy a parade or whatever it is that you decide that you want to do. Like you said, there are some other advantages. You are going during value season. You're also going to be there for the most part after the Mouse Fest events has ended, so you don't have to worry about the Mouse Fest crowds being there. So you are going to have some opportunities probably to walk up to even a lot of table service restaurants and say, listen, I'm a single person. Is there any chance that I can just come in, sit down and eat, um, especially even in World Showcase? A lot of times they may not have availability if you call up for an ADR, but especially for a single person, you definitely have uh, much more of an opportunity to be able to dine at restaurants than if you were with a group of four, six, eight, whatever it might be. Um, again, take advantage of the fact that you're going alone. Take some time to explore wherever it is or wherever it is. Take your time just to go through the parks and enjoy everything above and beyond just riding the attractions. And like you said, a lot of the attractions do have single rider lines. You'll be able to bypass a lot of the longer lines on things like Expedition Everest and etc. So um, I think you're going to find that you enjoy going alone, um, you know, and you will definitely, if you want to be with people and if you want to meet up with people, that's the beauty of, and the magic of Walt Disney World is if you want to find people to eat with, if you want people to ride with, it's very, very easy to make new friends and find people to do that with. So I think, and I know that you're going to have a great time. And uh, if you are around during any of the Mouse Fest events, by all means, please come on over and say hi if you can find some time between me and your other two favorite podcasters. No, I'm just kidding. Thank you very much for that email. Let's go to the next one that comes from Gina, who says, Hey, Lou, first, I have to tell you how much I enjoyed the show a few weeks ago with The Real Dream Finder. I listened to that part of the show twice. I appreciated him mentioning that the video of he and Figment from the Today Show was on YouTube because I was able to show it to my kids. My daughter's nine, my son is seven, and they just loved seeing the character I had told them so much about. In fact, that show had such an impact on my daughter, she now has me download your show onto her MP3 player when I do mine. 
Anyway, my husband recently gave me the unofficial guide thing to Walt Disney World for my birthday. In the Epcot chapter, in one of the little snippets from Jim Hill, it says, Dreamfinder takes a star turn. It says that Disney is looking to replace the Honey, I Shrunk the Audience with a new 3D movie that will serve as Dreamfinder's comeback vehicle. It also says that management is insisting it'll be a well-known celebrity to portray Dreamfinder, and it lists candidates like Steve Martin, Jack Black, and Nathan Lane. Have you heard anything about this? Do you think it's true? What do you think they should choose? Thanks so much, Lou. We're headed down to Disney in 18 days. My daughter and I are listening. Gina, Gina, thank you very much for the email. Gina's daughter, welcome as a new listener as well. I hope you guys have a great time in Walt Disney World. Now, as far as DreamFinder is concerned, I'm glad you guys enjoyed that segment. And yes, I have heard rumors for some time now about the possibility of DreamFinder coming back in some form or fashion to the Imagination Pavilion. Now, not necessarily in the Journey into Imagination attraction, but possibly in some other form or fashion. And yes, uh, rumors of Honey, I Shrunk the Audience possibly being replaced have gone around for a long time as well. People have talked about the relevance of Honey, I Shrunk the Audience to the younger generation and just the fact that it may be time to update that film. It's also been rumored that John Lasseter has been a big proponent of trying to bring the Dreamfinder back. So that very well may be a possibility. Uh, I don't know if the two rumors are just kind of colliding or if it just might be a match made in heaven, bringing the Dreamfinder back, maybe a new 3D movie replacing that. Uh, It sounds like something that people, I believe, would really enjoy. I personally would love to see him come back hopefully true to the original character, um, whether it be in the original attraction, uh, whether a a redo of the attraction, or in something else at the pavilion, and uh, to see maybe that walk-around meet-and-greet character come back with that same kind of passion and magic and love of what he does that Ron Schneider brought into the Dreamfinder character would be wonderful. So um, time will tell, and this is something we'll have have to definitely wait on and see. Obviously, As I hear more about these kind of rumors, I will definitely let you know. But you actually bring up an interesting couple of questions. Number one, I'd like to know from you, the listener, would you like to see the Dreamfinder come back in some form or fashion? Would you like to see him come back in the original attraction or maybe somewhere else in the pavilion? And if so, who would you like to see portray the Dreamfinder? Would you like to see a known celebrity, maybe like one of the ones that was named in the rumor, or somebody else maybe that you suggest, or maybe just somebody that is not a well-known celebrity, somebody who can kind of give the Dreamfinder their own sort of spin and their own sort of character. This is definitely something I'd like to hear you weigh in on. Why don't I go ahead, I'll post a thread over at the WDW Radio uh, forums over at DisneyWorldTrivia.com. Let us know. Let us know who you think should be the new Dreamfinder, if anybody. Uh, Should we try and get Ron Snyder back out of retirement and have he be the character once again? Would you like to see a celebrity? Would you like to see... Um, sort of a, a no-name person come back and breathe new like life into this obviously very much loved character. Marilyn wrote to me and said, Lou, I was wondering if you could help me out with some information. My boss has a terminally ill son. He's in his mid-20s. He's been sick since birth and is wheelchair-bound. She's wanted to take him to Disney World since he was a very small child. As time passes, he's becoming more and more ill. I know the Make-A-Wish Foundation is for children, But do you know of any organizations that help grant wishes for someone that is older than 18? Thanks so much, Marilyn. Marilyn, thank you very much for the email. Uh, Offhand, I really wasn't sure, but I did kind of look around to see what else I could find uh, that did work specifically in the granting of wishes for adults and being similar to Make-A-Wish. What I did find, although I know very little bit about them, honestly, is an organization called the Fairy Godmother Foundation. They are at fairygodmother.org. 
They do grant wishes to adults who are facing terminal illnesses. They've been around since 1998 and have granted hundreds of wishes in 49 states. They do about 30 wishes each month. Uh, what you can do, like I said, is go over to fairygodmother.org to find out uh, a little bit more about them, uh, and hopefully they will be able to help out in your boss's situation. Finally, the last email comes from Darren Diaz, who says, Hey, Lou, great show. I really enjoy the Epcot 25th Best of the Best segment. I have a question that's been nagging me for a while now. Why did the Odyssey restaurant Epcot close, and are there any plans to do anything with the building? I thought it was a great place to eat while we were going between Future World and World Showcase, and it was always crowded while I was there, so I can't imagine why they shut it down. Keep up the good work, Darren. Darren, yeah, this is a question I probably get really almost every week, and especially, I guess, maybe with Epcot's 25th, there's a lot more nostalgia, so people are looking to see maybe why or if they will reopen the Odyssey restaurant. Currently, it is being used for a lot of special events, like things like the Food and Wine Festival, uh, other special events uh, throughout the year where they do use the venue. It's used during the week and on weekends, oftentimes for corporate events. They'll have corporate training, corporate parties. It can be rented out for a lot of different special events, uh, a wedding reception, cocktail party, whatever it is that you like. And Disney, fortunately or unfortunately, makes a great deal of money on using these kind of venues for these special events. At the time, my assumption is that the Odyssey restaurant maybe was not performing as well as they had hoped. The location is somewhat awkward because of where it is located in between Future World and World Showcase, although kind of off the main path in between the two. Uh, it was, in case you may or may not remember, a counter-service restaurant um, that affords you some very nice views of the World Showcase Lagoon. There are no plans, from what I understand right now, to reopen that restaurant. There have been rumors for a long time about possibly reopening it. There have been suggestions made to do everything from open it up as sort of a buffet that will give you a sampling of some of the cuisine from around World Showcase to something completely different. Um, many people hoping that it does not open in the way it did before. It's just another hamburger and chicken fingers type place. I think the possibilities for the venue are great. I actually was there for an Illuminations dessert party during Epcot's 25th anniversary. Um, and it is a wonderful building, and I think they can definitely do a lot with it. I'd love to hear any suggestions you might have as to what you think they could or should do with the Odyssey restaurant. You can either email those to me, call in your voicemail, or maybe we'll post and start a thread over at the forums at DisneyWorldTrivia.com in the WDWRadio.com section. But that's going to do it for this week's email section. By all means, if you have any more emails, please keep sending them in to Lou at WDWRadio.com. That's all we have time for this week. Thank you again for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode of the show. My thanks again to Steve Barrett from HiddenMickey'sGuide.com and Bill Sully Sullivan, Disney legend, for joining me this week. As always, I want to thank you for listening. And remember that on our show notes page at WDWRadio.com, there's also more information and links about the topics we covered, as well as links to previous episodes of the show. While you're there, check out the link to OrlandoFunTickets.com and learn how you can save money on all of your Walt Disney World theme park, water park, and other tickets from an authorized and official Disney seller. Their service, reliability, and convenience have made them the number one Disney ticket company in the area, and they operate the largest vacation center in Orlando just outside the Walt Disney World gates. With the best prices and highest level of service, 
I recommend checking out OrlandoFunTickets.com and see how you can save on your next Walt Disney World ticket purchase. If you're a Disney Visa cardholder and are planning to go to Walt Disney World between January 1st and March 15th, 2008, visit our show notes page for a link to TheMagicForLess.com because if you purchase a Magic Away package for three nights or more, you will receive a free ticket upgrade. Upgrades include the Park Hopper option and the Water Park Fun and More option. So now you're going to be able to come and go from the theme park to theme park and enjoy all the water parks, Disney quests, and Pleasure Island for free. The number of rooms available with this special are limited and must be booked by December 15th, 2007. And you must use your Disney Visa card at the time of booking. And don't forget that with the Magic for Less, you also get their signature personalized services completely free. Plus, they have exclusive specials going on, which may entitle you to lots of great freebies like backpacks, books, and plenty more Disney surprises. They are my recommended travel planner and who I use, so definitely go and see how they can help you plan your next vacation, save you money, all with true Disney magic. On upcoming shows, I'll once again get back to the regular Walt Disney World news and rumor mill, and of course have more vacation planning tips and advice, hidden treasures, Disney scene investigations, trivia, history, and so much more. As always, please keep emailing the show at lou at wdwradio.com and calling in your voicemails to 206-202-4WDW. You can also join us all week long in our fun and friendly forums at disneyworldtrivia.com for discussions about the show and all things Disney. And if you like the show, please help spread the word by reviewing us on iTunes and letting other people know on other Disney online communities about it. Thank you again to my guests, and thanks to you, as always, for tuning in again. Hope you have a great week. See ya. Thank you.